and welcome to this episode of the Lip the Spirit podcast. This is Jonathan Jones, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Aaron Hine. Hello. And we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Nicole Price, who lives here in Kansas City. She is the CEO of Lively Paradox, an organization that helps individuals and companies and other organizations in the DEI space, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I got to know Dr. Price a couple of years ago when she did some work for us here at Dimbaco. But today we have her here to talk about her new book, Spark the Heart, Engineering Empathy in Your Organization. This is, I read a lot. I sent her a text when I finished this book just saying how much I enjoyed it. It really is an amazing book, and we'll tell you how you can get a copy of it at the end of the podcast. But Dr. Price, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about Lively Paradox and the work that you do? Yeah, my, my background is in engineering, and while I was in engineering, I found out that many people in HR think that engineers can't be good leaders. And because of that bias, Oftentimes, engineering managers, plant managers, don't always get invited to some of what's called, I don't know, high-performance leadership development programs. And so when I was in HR for a brief spell, my focus was on engineers and technical professionals and teaching them how to lead. And I got an, an opportunity to just uncover that, especially in the way that we think, all of the difference that we have based on the jobs we find, our lived experiences, they matter. And they make things a little more complicated and hard to deal with <laughs> sometimes in the beginning. And so I started my firm specifically around how do you create leaders who know how to help difference get along, whatever that difference is. Right. And I don't take um, an HR approach to that, the moral compass being the reason that you do these things, but really just showing that it makes good, logical, reasonable sense to make sure you're getting the best out of your people. And that's what we do at my firm. We, we help people get the best out of everyone who's on their team. Well, I know for me, you have a recommended book list that I started, and I know, I know it's an organic book list. And so it's, it's really helped me in my own journey just really learn and unlearn a lot. Mm -hmm. So I appreciated your book list. Can we put that in the sh the podcast notes, the link to your book list? Yeah, it's there. I probably should create one that I think is helpful for empathy. Funny story, Jonathan sent me a note in LinkedIn and he was like, hey, have you read this book? I'm like, yeah, and the other five that person wrote, here's a list for you, sir. <laughs> no, it was great. It was great. It's, I think it's, you know, it's not comprehensive, but it's, right. it's a good way to get your, your toe into the DEI space if you don't know much yeah. about it. Dr. Price, we're here to talk about your new book about empathy. But before that, you start the book talking about your mother. Can mm -hmm. you tell us about your mother and why she is such a part of this book because you talk about her in the beginning and the end. Yeah, you know, my mom can mostly be described as a Christian cook. <laughs> so she cooked all the time. It was her way to show love. It was her way to be sympathetic with you. If there was a sorrowful thing that happened, it was the way to celebrate. It was the way for everything. Food surrounded everything in our family. And she was the, the 
food ministry mm-hmm. leader at our church, which simply meant that when there was a large event at the church, she would organize all the volunteers to serve and all the food to cook. And But that extended beyond just the church walls into our actual home. And I, I like to paint a picture for what this looks like because I think most people can't quite understand it. But you wake up and you prep food and then you cook food Mm -hmm. and then you clean up and then you prep food for again and then you cook food and then you clean up and then you prep food and then you cook food and then you was she a clean as you go or she she was a clean as you go yeah but it felt like all day was just surrounding food and what was important about that was that people knew that whenever they came that there would be food there yeah and like always food there hot food, like nothing, uh, no sandwiches kind of thing, like full meals. And I, th- I think on the surface that sounds like, oh, that's really nice. But imagine being a, a child and there's 40, 50 people, some of whom you know and some you don't, coming through your house all day. It can be a little dis- disruptive. Yeah. And we only had one bathroom in my house growing up and it was upstairs. And you know how you just kind of leave your toothbrush out and things like that? Like, I never did stuff like that because I'm like, what if some random person (laughs) decides I'm going to touch my toothbrush or use it? (laughs) My mom didn't think about any of that. It was just, you know, what you do is feed people who are hungry. And when when she died, you would think that our little small 200 person church would have been a sizable enough sanctuary for a funeral for someone who a large I mean she's not famous or rich or any of those things but it was very clear that we were going to need a much bigger facility venue venue we we printed a thousand programs for her funeral and we ran out and there was standing room only at the Metropolitan Missionary Baptist Church which holds over a thousand people and to hear people talk about her was just a testament to the fact that she, I think mostly was just a good listener, but in addition to that, always wanted to make sure that if someone was hungry, she was there to feed them. Which is an incredible act of empathy. And you know, our podcast is called With the Spirit, that's Dimdeko's mission. And I was, as I was reading your book, I just realized time and time again, how those kind of go hand in hand that if, if you are lifting someone's spirit, or uh, conversely, if you are being empathetic to someone, probably is a better way to say it, then you are lifting their spirit, sometimes through food, sometimes through encouragement. So talk a little bit more about the significance of your mom feeding people as an act of empathy. Was there anything in her background that shaped her yeah, my mom had lots of trauma, and I m- much of it she wouldn't go into great detail about. But I think I mentioned, in fact, I know I mentioned in the book that you know she had scars and things on her arms that I know were from some childhood abuse things. And there was a quote I, I ran into once that said, "Beautiful people don't just happen; yeah. that uh, typically there's." some forging that has occurred in in the process. 
but she was the oldest child to my maternal grandmother, born in Coahoma County, Mississippi, you know, during the height of the Jim Crow era. Mm -hmm. And if listeners don't know, I'm, I'm black, so, and my mom was too. And so Mississippi is, a, is an interesting place if you are living in rural Mississippi in the, in the early 40s with that experience. And somewhere around 1965, my dad's family was kind of run away from Mississippi and their entire farm uh, taken, and they left kind of in the middle of the night, my mom left mm -hmm. with them. And they came to Kansas City and, you know, built a life here for me and my siblings. But she, what I, what I always think is interesting about what she was able to do, because I do think that my mom, and I, I say this, is the reason why I wasn't as empathetic it felt like there was no end to the amount of cooking and listening and serving and all the things. Right. And as a young person with schoolwork you have to do and aspirations you want to achieve, it just felt overwhelming. And I found myself kind of taking this kind of objective, separating myself from people approach to just be able to, to handle what I think she had built years and fortitude around. So I don't know, I, I will say that one thing I'm trying to help people understand though, is that while yes, empathy helps you lift spirits, sometimes when you're empathetic, when you're really listening to people and understanding them, you learn something about how awful sometimes the human spirit can be too. Mm -hmm. And what does it take in those moments in order to, to make the next right decision? It takes courage and, and everybody has enough courage to, to do it if we, if we practice, I think. Yeah. Okay. So Dr. Price, I know you're a pretty prolific writer. Why this subject matter? Why this book? What, what, what struck your heart about having to create this work? You know, interestingly enough, I was at an, an event here in Kansas City with some of our most wealthy members. And I was teaching a session around anti-racism, and one of the members, very kind, incredibly nice man, at the end of the session said, Dr. Bryce, thank you for this. And I get everything you are saying intellectually. I was hoping you'd help me get it emotionally. Interesting. I was stuck there a little bit, but he went on to say that when he goes to his home behind his gated community, on his private jet, these things just don't impact him. And leaning into empathy, you don't judge that statement you try to see what's behind that statement. And in seeing what's behind that statement, he's saying, I need you to help me care, yeah. right? Yeah. And there are a whole bunch of things <laughs> I could think about that. And so I thought, you know, somebody needs to write a book about how to empathize with people who have different lived experiences than you. And it kept coming back to me, you are the person. So I went and talked to my spiritual advisor and said, D 
dude, I, no way should I be the one. I'm the worst person to write a book about empathy. He laughs. You're the best person to talk about empathy. And I like that you call your spiritual advisor dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm over talking over at Church of the Resurrection, talking to uh, Pastor Adam. They're a client of mine. And I mentioned it to him thinking he was going to come up with somebody else who should write a book about empathy, or maybe he would, you know? Right. He laughs. You're the best person to talk about empathy. And what I started to recognize was that there are people who are naturally empathetic. It's a real small segment of the mm-hmm. population. Lots of people think they're na- naturally empathetic. If there's anything I've learned through this process is that's not true. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if this is not scientific, but I'd say less than 10% of us are naturally empathetic. But empathy can be learned, and I learned it. And I think that's why people think I should be the one talking about it, because I know what it's like to not be empathetic necessarily, and I know how to build the skill. It's not natural. And that's one of the key things I want to talk about. So I'm a certified Gallup Clifton Strengths coach, which used to be Strength Fighters. Mm-hmm. And one of the things it measures for is empathy. And what I've realized that people who their empathy is lower in the 34 strengths that they measure for that I, I describe it in terms of that you probably tend to be situationally empathetic, not just not that you lead with empathy. So I want to get your input on that. And just in the, in the book, when you talk about the different types of how empathy shows up, I thought it was yeah. really insightful as well. So there were a lot of notes in this book. So I, I always send, here's what I want to talk about. And I, I could have probably filled up three or four pages of let's talk about this. But on page 17 in the book, you do reference the other Gallup tool, the Q12 employee engagement survey, which we use here at Denbeco. And it's my favorite. It's question 10 on the survey and it's I have a best friend at work and it's and it's the one that they get the most pushback I get pushback and it's like my best friend we met in third grade I don't and and I always like to say who's your go-to person at work so I I laughed out loud when you reference this so talk about the importance of of having a best friend at work I'm just kind of selfishly I'm using you to help boost this is an important thing to have in a survey (laughs) okay i have to be honest though and first say that i was the worst person at giving people grief about that question because (laughs) it i mean it should say friend at work or something i think when it says best friend i think we get stuck on that idea like dude i got like one best friend and they ain't here let's be clear have you seen their chief scientists talk about why yes yes they want people to pause they want you to pause and think about your 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 confidant yeah Yeah. Yeah. listen i'm all in (laughs) on the best friend at work question now because when my best friend at work wasn't there anymore, work was not as fun. You know, this guy and I would get ready for meetings together after the meeting. We, you know, we do our little discussions, our little meetings after the meetings together. We would go to lunch together, everything. And when he wasn't there, it's like work then became just work. And I think some of why I was excited to even go to work was to to be able to engage with him. And I don't think you realize that until your best friend's not at work anymore. And that you need to have 
that one person for empathy to show up, sort of, so to speak. I mean, you want it in the organization, but you need someone who's going to be empathetic to and, your and they hear you and your frustrations. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And there's some data that says even children who are in kind of the worst school districts with the worst possible life experiences, if they have one trusting adult, right. that they are likely going to be okay. Right. And so now I'm, and I support the best friend at work question. I support it. He don't. Yeah. On page 52, where the, the, this chapter is on listening, and you say something that I've never heard it said this way before. You talk about your background as an engineer, where it's all about the facts, just give me the data. And we all have been those people or are those people or know those people who they just want, just give me the facts. Talk about, and the way you say it in the book is listen for understanding, not accuracy. And tell us what you mean there and also how that is empathetic. It's really hard, by the way. It's simple, but it's not easy right. to listen for understanding instead of accuracy. I'm trained to listen for accuracy. Engineers need to be precise and accurate. If I get it wrong, you might have a little too much of an active ingredient in your prescription. Mm -hmm. Kill you. The bomb doesn't go off when it's supposed to. The, the plane doesn't elevate at the right altitude. These, these, are, these can be very dangerous things. But when we're trying to connect with humans, we have to remember that people are not processes. And while we might want our, our processes to be accurate and precise, our relationships with people are just generally a little more fluid and need some, some grace area. Mm -hmm. And it was my own therapist who, she since fired me, by the way, we can talk about that on another <laughs> podcast. She told me the importance of listening for understanding. And basically the idea is that whatever another person feels makes total sense to them and how we react to their feelings will determine how much they trust us how much they want to engage with us how much they even like us and there's an example that she often uses that says if i say we haven't spent any time together any time. We have not spent any time together. So the engineer goes, we were just together last week. Like right, what, right. what we, we did spend time. And then would start to debate your any statement by telling you, well, we spent time on Tuesday and Thursday and then all day on Sunday, you know, we were together. Not helpful for human connection. How often have you found either personally or in your work where a meaningful conversation or conflict that needs to be resolved gets off the rails because of factual inaccuracy? I would say almost always. Yeah. Because when we're upset... And, we, and I don't mean intentional. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. When we're upset or unhappy, because that's usually where this becomes an issue, we're more likely to speak in absolutes, never, always, mm -hmm. you know. And 
we sensationalize because I want you to understand me and I'm gonna sensationalize to try to get you to listen. And if we think about the spirit of what someone's trying to say, which is, I wanna spend more time with you. Now I can make better decisions. And I think that's the critical point. When, when people think about empathy, they think about this thing where they're just giving, giving, giving. But if you can truly understand the spirit of what other people are trying to say and what they need, you can make better decisions in your life, personally and professionally. I didn't know this was gonna be a podcast on parenting as well, but as a father of teenagers, yeah, I'm starting to, oh yeah, maybe I'll approach it that way from here on out. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of parallels. It's just, it's a, it's a start early situation. I think when you said, it's their truth. How you react to their truth is, is how they determine how much they're going to engage. Yeah. And I think it's easy, and, and our kids are all grown. We have five grandkids as a parent. And then we, we you know, play the role of prosecuting attorney very quickly on you got that wrong, so I'm going to dismiss everything that you say when the empathetic approach would be let me try and hear what you're saying. And that's, yeah. that's hard. I love talking about parent-child relationships because it's one of the only privileged, non-privileged relationships where the privileged people, i.e. the parents, have been in the underprivileged spot and then still do the thing that was done to them. Oh, wow. It's true. It's true. (laughs) We understand. We have walked in the shoes of our children before, and yet we still forget how to empathize with their perspective. So Dr. Price in the book, it's on page 88. The note that I put is how do attempts to share that you've experienced something similar show a lack of empathy? And, and I know for me, I, I this internal dialogue when I'm, you know, listening to people or someone comes to me and they've gone through something very difficult. I, I know out of good faith, I'm trying to empathize and communicate i've gone through something similar but how does that shut that person down and really in reality show a lack of and a lack of empathy and it's really just us talking about ourselves yeah you know in general i want people to know that i am speaking in sweeping generalizations there are exceptions to some of the things that i'm sharing But if you come to me and you're telling me about something you've experienced, if my first thought is to say, oh yeah, me too, my reflective question is, am I really listening? Am I there for that person? Or have I been listening to respond? And if my first thought is, oh yes, me too, then it's usually an indication that I'm listening, waiting on my opportunity to respond. But there there are good reasons to let someone know that they're not alone. Mm -hmm. The challenge is you had to have listened first, well, and thoroughly before you can ever say yes, me too, because you might be off base, actually, in, in what you're sharing. And that just makes the other person really internalize that you weren't listening to them in that moment. Yeah, and when, when I, as I've gotten older, I think I've gotten a bit better, but I literally sometimes have this internal dialogue in my head while I'm listening, saying, 
be quiet. Don't say anything. Just listen. Be quiet. There's a book called The Introvert's Advantage, and I think there should be one called The Extrovert's Dilemma, too. Because, of course, listening is a little, it seems, let me clarify, it seems easier for the introvert. But that all of that internal energy and processing is happening. It's just inside. Yeah. And so the other person doesn't always necessarily feel it. But for those of us who are extroverted, we need help yeah, to stop help. that thinking out loud. Um, so what would you say if you do have a shared experience that you know is going to be beneficial to the conversation. Yeah. What's your recommendation on how you should handle that and, and to be able to wait and listen, but still been with, be still within the context of an empathetic response, but you're sharing that shared experience. I learned this in an unconventional way through coaching, actually. So at the executive level, when you're coaching, you just ask questions and listen and listen and you're doing that for about 20 minutes before you ever give any advice and I have a model that's free and available to anybody who wants to to see it but when you hear someone else's problem the answer is obvious to you because it's not close to you mm-hmm. you know it's like if you take your hand and put it on your nose then you don't really see your hand. You're, you're clouded by the fact that your hand is in your face, but if you pull it out in front of you, you can see it clearly. It's called clarity of distance. So when you're separated from an issue, even your ability to say, oh, yeah, this has happened to me, is because of clarity of distance. And so what I, when I train coaches, and this is just good for general practice, ask some clarifying questions, listen for understanding, be sure you've heard everything accurately before you ever say anything. And then you might ask, I, I think I have a shared experience. Would you like to, to, would that be helpful to you in this moment? I've never had anybody say no to that question because by the time I've been listened to, if I feel like I've been heard, well, yeah, please tell me about the time you've, you've dealt with this and help me figure out a way. But people don't want that right away. That's the differentiator. You have to listen first. That's all. Because then it turns into I'm one upping you with my. Mine is worse. Wait till you hear this. Yeah. You know. It's interesting. I read not last year. Somewhere, maybe my wife Marie sent me this quote that when someone something bad happens to someone, like maybe a pet dies or whatever it is, and you've experienced something much worse. They said, you have to remember for that person, that's their worst day they've had so far. So it's equal to your worst day. And when I thought about the impact of that, it's like, okay, yeah. you need to just listen. All right, so Dr. Price, I believe empathy is the most essential quality of civilization. That is not my quote, that is a Roger Ebert quote that you chose to include in the book. Can you speak to that a little bit and why that resonated so strongly with you? Before I was taking an active role in working on my own empathy, which wasn't by choice, by the way, I met a, a gentleman who was probably oozes empathy and compassion. And he, without telling me, took me through a series of exercises over four and a half years to teach me uh, more empathy. 
And I remember the day I realized what he was doing. I was saying something to him that sounded like him and not like me. And I was like, oh my gosh, you've been working with me on this for four or five years. And he just laughed because he, he had been. And the challenge is that empathy, while it can be learned, is not typically something that happens fast. Not if you're learning it through exercises. You can, you can learn it fast. I say God specializes in the fast track business. There's a, there's a way to learn empathy quickly. You might not like it. You might not like it, but in, in class, it happens really slowly. And I, t- in, I use this quote at the beginning of this chapter called What Sparked Your Empathy? Because I was, I was talking about a client situation related to a parking lot. And this particular organization hired returning citizens from prisons, which as you can imagine, presents its, its own set of challenges because people have more challenges when they've been to prison for a decade right. or so. Yeah. And the day I was there, they had just towed one of their employees' cars from the parking lot. And the cost of the tow was like 250 bucks or something. I don't remember exactly, but whatever it was, this woman would have had to work 10 hours to get mm-hmm. the money, 10 hours uh, pre-taxes, <laughs> to be able to get her car out of, of the lot. And you couldn't just, she had the kind of job where you couldn't just leave, which many of us have the privilege to do. She also couldn't just say, hey, I'm taking off tomorrow either. You had to plan your days off unless you were gonna c- call in sick, which would then cause you problems around your bonus. And so I was, they said something about her parking in the, in the wrong spot three times. And it was my question, because I'm ignorance, clarity of distance was, well, are there enough spots? Like who willingly parks in the wrong spot at work? Nobody in my head. And one of the leaders thought that there were enough spots, but there was another one there who said actually doing the shift overlap and they had just decided that they were gonna have people overlapping shifts. We're about 15 spots short. And so I just stood there for a moment to see if the obvious would become obvious to them, and it wasn't. Because one of them said, well, you should just, she should come earlier. And I was a little judgy, if I'm just being honest. And this woman, I said, well, then wouldn't that mean somebody else would not then have a a parking space? Because because you're short. So I... um, I, I talked to Dr. Dr. Roberts, I talk about him in, in, extensively in the book, and it shared like what had just happened. And we're fans of, and Jonathan, you know this, not teaching things, but allowing people to arrive at ideas. So at the beginning of our session, we asked people who had been raised in poverty. And people were reluctant to raise their hands But I said, okay, don't worry about that. Those of you who have experienced poverty, and I don't mean just you couldn't get what you want, but like poverty, what were some things that would make you late to work? And people said things like not having electricity, needing to shower at someone else's house, car not starting, you don't have another one, the bus is late, you had to get somebody else where they were supposed to be and you don't have a second car or what. I mean, just the list went on and on and on. And, and I asked them when they thought about their employees, how many of them did they think had probably had a poverty experience? And then I shared what happened with the woman's car and said, 
think back to when you had all those experiences with no money. If your car got towed and it cost you $250 to get it out of the tow lot, what was going to happen? And before I even got my sentence finished, someone said, I've lost that, I lost that car. Because tomorrow I'm not going to have mm -hmm. the fee plus the extra. Right. And then the day after that, and the bill's just going to keep going and I don't have a way. So I've lost my car. And I said, so if someone has lost their car, then what happens? Now I don't have a way to get to work. And then what happens? And then what happens? And we just walk through that scenario. By the end, to their credit, the plant manager had agreed to get her car out of the tow lot. And then also, they worked with a ride-sharing company to create some opportunities or options for people for a lower cost. They created a van pool. So just some things to be able to support their folks. And why I think the Roger Ebert quote is, is helpful is because without the ability of getting those leaders in the minds and the experience of the employees, there's no way we would have been able to get to a solution. The rules are you don't park in visitor parking, period. And if you do, your car gets towed. And it would have left the employees to try to figure out their own ride sharing situation which when you're a returning citizen is not as easy as many of us mm -hmm. might think. And I use that story because these are all nice, kind, inclusive leaders who just because they didn't have the ability to put themselves in another person's shoes were making really bad decisions. So I'm gonna use that as a segue and, and in the book, there's a chapter on page 117 where you talk about the importance of reading fiction and really what you did with those plant managers, you had to create through fiction a shared experience for them to be empathetic. So talk about reading fiction and its importance in, in developing empathy. Yeah, you know, if I would have brought that woman in as an example and just had her tell her story, for people who are naturally empathetic, that might move their heartstrings. Mm -hmm. But for people who are rule followers, the people who think that the world would just be better if people knew the rules and followed the rules. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those people. We right. need them. That's why our planes leave on time, right? Like we, you need rule followers. Stop signs are a good thing. Yeah, stop signs are a good thing. And there should be consequences sometimes when people don't follow the rules. But for that segment of the population who are the rule followers, and the, as some estimates say about 25%, your personal story does not move them. Fiction allows you to actually be in the shoes of another person, which then brings the human component, right. which when I think, what would I want to happen if it were me? We tend to want people to give us a little grace when it's us. So I did two things in that, that workshop that day. There were people in the room they had never known had had an experience. Right. And so now the, the story they had told themselves about what it looks like to be impoverished is not the line worker who's been to prison who you know, might be a different race or, than me or a different socioeconomic class. It is this is my colleague who I've been working alongside, assuming that we have all the same shared experiences. So now I've just humanized a community of people right. that hadn't been humanized before. 
That was one. But the other thing was when you spark the imagination, learning is freer. You don't have the, the boundaries of the rules because the rules can sometimes get in the way of being empathetic. In fact, I often say people over policy because yeah. if you want to see something that's uh, not empathetic, have it the other way around. In the book, you do a great job of describing empathetic listening versus active listening. Can you just explain the differences and, and why you included that as well? Active listening is repeating back to someone what you heard them say. And typically, you're being pretty accurate in that recounting. Empathetic listening is not for you to repeat back anything, actually. You are listening with the sole purpose of benefiting the speaker. You are allowing the speaker to get out all of the stuff that they are experiencing so that then they can hear you. You know, my mother used to say about people who would either be on, on drugs or have, suffer from alcoholism. You know how people are like, I'm not giving that person any money so they can go buy some liquor. Right, right. My mom used to feel like, well, if I take care of the liquor, then maybe they'll listen to everything else I got to say first. Like that, yes. <laughs> that, that very human need they have right, needs right. to be met. Right. And then possibly I can reach them in another way. And I always thought that was interesting. It was kind of like teaching a person to fish and giving them fish at the same time. Right. Because if you're, if you're hungry, it's probably hard to learn how to fish. Yeah. <laughs> so talking about that, you also talk in the book that Empathy just isn't this touchy-feely no. where it gets rid of accountability or meeting deadlines. How do you see, because you talk about your mom, you know, yeah. teach them to fish and give them fish. You're still yeah. holding someone accountable to learn how to fish and feed themselves. So right. talk about that. Well, what I didn't say is that my mom was killed by a drunken driver and that, that murder trial went on for almost five years. And the person who hit her car, just to, to paint the picture, he had been in and out of prison or rehab like eight times. He had stolen a car that day. He ran a red light. And when he hit my mom and saw her like dying, he ran. So when you get all of that, right, people are like, oh my God, this guy is the worst person ever. But it's my mom. So I, I, I can't do that. I have to you can't ask what's wrong with a person because that's my natural inclination. You have to say, what happened to a person that would get them to this point? And upon, with a little more investigation, you found out that uh, this guy, his name was Jonathan also, was in foster care, had horrible experiences in foster care. His grandmother was the only person who ever really loved him in any substantial way. And sometimes because she didn't have enough money, she couldn't have him. And the day he stole the car and was drinking to satiate his grief, his grandmother had just died. And all of those things are important to consider. And he had a six-month-old child. He, in essence, was a child. He's 21 years old. My son's currently 24. Like that, to me, that's a child. And there have been times when my son has made decisions that have not been the best, even right. as have I. 
But when someone has harmed us or when someone's decisions have hurt us, we don't think about the times in which we've done things that could have resulted in really horrible situations. Now, here's the thing, though. A person's life was lost. So that doesn't mean that you don't have to go to court and be charged with manslaughter and get whatever the judge decides is necessary. But in my victim impact statement, I didn't talk about he had been arrested eight times. He, you know, I talked about my mother Mm -hmm. because that's the victim impact statement. Mm -hmm. This is who my mom is. And this is who has been taken away from us. And I just felt compelled to also say my mother would have considered the whole of who Jonathan Ross was, not just who he was on his worst day. Yeah, when I read that in the book, I thought that was really impactful. Yeah, empathy is not the enemy of accountability. It just means, does he need to spend 28 years in prison, which is the maximum possible? I don't know about that. So, you know, when he's up for parole, I don't intend to go to argue for him to stay in in jail. I honestly believe that he had learned his lesson by the time we went to Mm -hmm. court. At least it seemed obvious to me that he had. But he got 15 years in prison. When he gets out, his son will be 17 years Mm -hmm. old, and I hope that he'll be able to live a beautiful, thriving, thriving life. If you put yourself in the shoes of another person and you still go, oh, no, I would never, you know, that's not not quite going to get us to where, where we need to be. Talk to us a little bit about grace. It's a powerful word. It's There's elements of it, obviously, empathy. You have to have grace to know what it means. I think what's most important is that I certainly understand the spirit of what you're trying to, to ask me. When Every year in August, I do this 14 days of empathy, and I invite other people to join me. And it's just a series of little exercises to be intentional. And about that's, practicing that's in the book, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and, and I lay out the 14 days, but one of the days in the week about practice, actually, the first week, the first seven days is just about reflecting on empathy. You don't even really have to do anything. You just have to have uh, thoughts in your head. But the second week is actually about doing something. And the, the session about grace just ask you to think about one point in your life where someone has given you something you did not deserve and it was to your benefit because we start to think that everything we have we got it through merit and that gets in the way of being empathetic there have been people we've wronged there have been oversights we've made biases we've held in fact, the book is not a preachy book at all. It is me telling telling you some of the greatest times in my life where I've gotten it wrong. Yeah, I, I this is not a, you're correct, this is not a preachy book at all. It is like, look at me and don't do what I do, okay? Because I learned a lot doing it this way, but we've all been granted a little grace somewhere by someone. And sometimes you can't get to empathy. Like you just can't understand how someone else would make a decision or or make a statement or do a thing. And when you can't do that, every once in a while just offer a little grace. And I think that's important, especially for the people we hold dearest and closest to us. We're about at time. What final thoughts do you have just about empathy? Why is it so important? And why is this your focus right now? I believe that 
some of the world's most nefarious humans understand empathy. Stick with me here. They understand what another person thinks, feels, and believes and how to manipulate that to get people to do something that they would otherwise not do. Nice, kind, well-meaning people. Instead of projecting what we think, feel, and believe onto other people, if we could lean into empathy, could really change how we engage with people around the world. And so I think, and I've called this book Spark the Heart because I believe that Kansas City, in the heart of Midwest Nice, can be the spark of empathy throughout the rest of the country, ultimately sparking an empathy revolution around the globe. I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> but I'm here talking to you because hopefully someone will listen and say, I wanna join that, that empathy revolution. Dr. Price, thank you for joining us. Again, this is Jonathan Jones and Aaron Hunt with Dimdeco, and this is the Lift the Spirit podcast. And we're joined today by Dr. Nicole Price. And what a great conversation on empathy. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Really appreciate it. And we'll see you, hopefully, not see you, hope you catch the next podcast. <laughs>